0: Let me ask you to take your Bibles and turn to Second Samuel chapter 13. Second Samuel 13. Children are very much a reflection of their parents. When I was a kid, everyone told me that I looked like my dad more than any of my other siblings. I clo- resembled him the closest. And uh, to the point where every time I would see people, they would say that. And, and I asked my parents one time, why didn't you just name me after my dad if... If, uh, if I look so much like him, well, uh, that didn't last very long, my desire to have my name changed. But we don't merely resemble our parents in the way that we look, but, but also in the way that we act as well. We adopt our parents' love for culture and food. We take on their mannerisms and characteristics. And without realizing it, we often adopt their phrases and their tone, and their passions. Maybe you've caught yourself, wow, I just sounded like my dad there, or just that sounds just like something my mom would say, and I just said it. One of the sobering realities of having children is that you realize that, that they also adopt your characteristics, your desires, the things that repulse you become repulsive to them. And most sobering of all, they often adopt your sins. In one sense, we look at our children and think that they are their own person and that they are fully responsible for their own sin. But I don't think it's that easy. In many cases, our failures and our failure to teach and to lead by example may not be the cause of our children's sin, but certainly it is a catalyst that is used by their flesh and the devil to carry out their sin. So what I'm saying is that that I may not be primarily responsible for the sin of my child. They are. They stand before God based on their choices. But in many cases, I have not led them well. I have not left a good example. And in fact, I have left an adverse example which gives them cause to justify their sin. Dad did that, and he turned out okay. Or dad did that, and he didn't show any remorse for it. And the story of chapter 13 is about David's sons, but I think it's also about David. The sins of David's sons are at least in part the responsibility of David. He is partially uh, uh, responsible for their sins. That is, the consequences of his sin lead to them sinning and his failure to lead properly lead them to sinning. So, so two things that, are, that David does or doesn't do that lead to them sinning. And so I think we need to see this in terms of the bigger picture, not just in terms of, of these terrible sins that take place in this chapter. I'm going to begin reading in chapter 13 with verse 1. This is the Word of God. Now, it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin. And it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, or Shammah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me then Amnon said to him I am in love with my with Tamar the sister of my brother Absalom Jonadab then said to him lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill when your father comes to see you say to him please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat and let her prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat from her hand so Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent to the house for Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down, and she took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me. For such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where can I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her, since he was stronger than she. He violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go away. But she said to him, No because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, Now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Now she had on a long-sleeved garment, for in this manner the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. And his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment which was on her. And she put her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. We're going to look at uh, the two main sins that, that are carried out and explained for us in this passage. The first is Amnon's sin of rape in verses 1 through 19. Amnon's sin of rape. Some time has passed maybe even several years between chapters 12 and 13. We see that in the first couple of words. Now it was after this. The three main characters in this passage, this story, are Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom. And all of them have the same father. This might be a little hard to see, but there's David there. David has a brother named Shammah, which we saw, and he's got the son Jonadab, remember, uh, Amnon had a friend, Jonadab. That's a cousin of these of Amnon and, and Absalom. Amnon is the oldest of David's sons through Ahinoam. Absalom is the third oldest, really the fourth oldest son. There is uh, Kilion who dies. Adonijah who tries to take the throne in Second Samuel, or really the end of Second Samuel, beginning of First Kings, and then Absalom's the fourth son. Absalom and Tamar have the same mother, Maacah, through King Talmai of Gesher, one of the Syrian kings. So what you need to know there is that Absalom and Tamar are fully blood siblings. And, and Amnon is a half-brother to both of them. And there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of trouble that we see in this relationship. Two of, the two have the same mother but all three of them are born of David. Amnon is the oldest son, making him the heir. The sin of Amnon is described for us here in these first six verses as his lust begins to be conceived. And like with David, it begins with a look and then a desire, a wrong desire, a lust. The text of verse 1 says that he loved her. Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Now, we know in the context this is not true biblical love, but rather a worldly kind of love, an infatuation, a sensual craving. And this love bloomed into an intense passion that caused him to be ill, according to verse 2. He wasn't himself. He was thinking about this so much and it disturbed him so much that he couldn't have Tamar, that he became ill. Jonathan's close friend, his cousin, Jonadab, knew Amnon well enough to know when something was wrong, and so he... Just came out and asked him. And what we learn about Jonadab in verse 3 is at the end of the verse that he is a shrewd man. The word there in the Hebrew is literally wise man, but it's used in a negative connotation. That is, that he is a crafty man. He uses his wisdom for evil. That he had skills to be able to rationalize the best way to get what he wanted, in this case for evil. And Jonathan's, Jonah Dab's, excuse me, Jonah Dab's plan in verses five and six is to ask Tamar over to prepare a meal for him, and maybe he could seduce her. Maybe he could convince her to lie with him. But when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. In verses seven through fourteen, Amnon carries out the plan. He asks his dad for permission. And when Tamar comes to prepare a meal for him, he sends everybody out and will not take food unless she brings it into his bedroom. And then in verse 11, we see that his goal initially was not rape, but it was to get her to consent. At the end of verse 11, he says, Come lie with me, my sister. He gives her an opportunity to, to consent. Tamar, of course, declines and tried to reason with him in four ways. In verses 12 through 13, first... This is this is a disgraceful act, verse twelve. Second, she would be disgraced. How could she ever regain her reproach? How could she ever recover from the reproach that she would receive from having been raped by her half brother? And then this the third reason is found at the end of verse thirteen you will be a town fool. Everyone's going to 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 see you as a fool, someone who Just wants to get his own way. Doesn't care about the laws of God. And then the fourth reason is that it would be better if we did this legally. At the end of verse 13. Why don't we ask the king? See if he will do this. Now I don't think she's trying to get permission from her dad for this to happen. I just think she's using this as an excuse to escape. So let's go talk to dad and see what he says. Surely he'll give you permission knowing that he wouldn't. She rejects the invitation. He rejects her reasoning. And so he forces himself on her and rapes her in verse 14. Verses 15 through 19, we see that sin leads to disgrace. The petulance and spoiled nature of Amnon is seen most clearly here in this verse. And once he gets what he wants from her, he turns on her and is ready to discard her like a used object. Verse 15, Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. So he says, Get out. I don't even want to have you in my presence. Tamar wisely declines in verse 16 because she knew that a man who raped a woman in Israel would ruin her life. No one would marry someone like that. And if she could not be married, she could not be cared for in the ancient Near East. And so, she said, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving. Amnon sends her away anyway, uses his attendant in verses 17 through 19. But, but Tamar wants to make it clear that Amnon has sinned against her. And so this robe that once was an expression or a, a demonstration of her virginity is now being torn, and she comes out in, with ashes on her head and this garment torn, torn so showing that she is in grief and mourning and that her virginity has been stolen from her. And Tamar was right when she tried to reason with him that his sin would bring a disgrace to him. And that's exactly what happens. If that sin wasn't bad enough, it's compounded in verses 20 through 39 when we see Absalom's sin of murder. Absalom's sin of murder. Absalom's immediate response is one of hatred. But he didn't show it. First thing that he does is he cares for his sister. He brings her in and cares for her as the victim and takes her into his house. And while he doesn't express his hatred, notice the second part of verse 22 for Absalom hated Amnon. And this was all part of his plan. This was a way for him to cover up his hatred because if it was exposed then Amnon would always be looking over his shoulder. But what Absalom wanted to happen was that Amnon became comfortable around Absalom at some point so that he can carry out his, de- his desire, which was to murder his brother. When lust, when hate is conceived, hate gives birth to sin. Hatred is not always acted on right away. In verse 23, now it came about after two full years. That Absalom had the sheep shearers, so he's sitting on this for a long time. And it could be that Absalom's hatred grew and grew as he saw the the uh, the the sad estate of his sister Tamar, as he saw her her countenance constantly in a state of depression. Maybe his hatred grew and grew. We don't know, or it could be simply that that he. Wanted to let some time pass in order to make, to, to take his potential accusers off the scent. But whatever the case, he was wise enough, or we should say crafty enough, to know that if he acted right away, his plot would be suspected, could possibly be thwarted, and even worse, it could backfire on him. And so he waits for two years. And here's his plan in verses 23 and following. Now it came about after two full years that Absalom had sheep shearers in Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, now your servant has sheep shearers. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, we should not all go, for we will be burdensome to you. Although he urged him, he would not go, but blessed him. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But when Absalom urged him, he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. So his goal is to get Amnon to his house one way or the other. And the means to get there is the sheep-shearing party. Apparently this is what farmers do. But Amnon wouldn't come to, to something like that. Amnon's just not going to come to his brother's house knowing that he probably had this deep hatred for him. And so instead, he invites his father, David. Absalom knows that his father is going to decline because it's going to be too much work for Absalom to care for his father and all of his servants. But Absalom knows that David can't just decline. He has to send some kind of a family representative. And who is a better person to represent David than the crown prince, the next in line to the throne? And So that's what Absalom asked for. Well, why don't you send your crown prince? David is a little bit uh, skeptical at first at the end of verse 26. Why should he go with you? But eventually he agrees and says, Okay, go, but you're taking all all of my sons. Verse 28. See that Absalom gets Amnon drunk and then signals to his servants to strike him dead. Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. Have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. The servants of Absalom did to Amnon, just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. So Absalom gives this little pep speech to his servants, pep talk. Apparently he has to give them courage. Be courageous, be valiant. Why? What are they doing? They're assassinating the crown prince, the one who's next in line to the throne. This is not going to go unnoticed. The king is certainly going to know, and yet Absalom has to convince his servants to do it. When I give the signal, when he's drunk enough, then kill him. So they follow through on this act of terror in verse 29. And apparently, the messengers thought that all the sons of the king were going to die. Remember, I've said before that in the ancient Near East, often what would happen is, is that anyone who was um, a threat to the throne could, could be killed by their own family members. And so Absalom could be paving the way for him alone to be the sole heir to the kingdom. So when they saw him kill the first and the most important, Amnon... But maybe they thought all the rest were going to be killed. And so notice what happens in verse 30. Now it was while they were on the way that the report came to David saying, Absalom has struck down all the king's sons and not one of them is left. Now that's not what happened. But the messengers thought that was what was going to happen based on what they initially saw. Verse 31, Then the king arose, tore his clothes and lay on the ground and all his servants were standing by with clothes torn. Jonadab, the son of Shemiah, David's brother responded, Do not let my Lord suppose they have put to death all the young men the king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. Because by the intent of Absalom, this has been determined since the day that he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, do not let my lord the king take the report to heart, namely, all the king's sons are dead, for only Amnon is dead. Now Absalom had fled, and the young man, who was the watchman, raised his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come. According to your servant's words, so it happened. As soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted their voices and wept. And also the king and all his servants wept very bitterly. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, the king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. So Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur and was there three years. The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. So in all the shock and commotion, the messengers who were there left in a hurry and assumed that Absalom would kill them all. And so that's what they reported to David. Jonadab, the cousin of, of uh, David's sons, sets the record straight and says, no, it's not, it's not true that they all died. It's just Amnon. This is something Absalom's been wanting to do since the day that that, Amnar, uh, that Amnon violated Tamar. And so, when David's sons return to the palace, they all weep over the death of Amnon. And in the meantime, Absalom knows that David cannot ignore the sin of murder. And so he flees to his grandfather's house, Talmai. King Talmai, the father of Maacah, Maacah was one of the wives of David. So he's living up in Syria now in Gesher. And interestingly, Absalom is now closer in line to being the next king. Gilead apparently died in childhood. He was a second-born son. But we don't hear any more about him. And so he very likely died. And so Absalom and Adonijah are next in line. And while Absalom was away, David mourned for him every day. Maybe David remembered what it was like to be in hiding. He knew what it was like to be far away. He knew what it was like to to live in uncertain times, not knowing what was going to happen next. And so he sympathized with Absalom in some way. And this last part of verse 39 is a little bit unclear. Why would David be happy or comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead? Maybe David's happy that the situation that has been hanging over his head, what are we going to do about my son Amnon who violated my daughter Tamar? What are we going to do about him? He hasn't done anything up until this point. It's been two years. Maybe this has been weighing on him, and so now that it's been taken care of for him, David is comforted because he doesn't have to take care of it himself. He doesn't have to execute judgment on Amnon himself. So there are two primary sins that we see here, but I think there's a third sin that we can't overlook. And that is David's sin of abdication. David's sin of abdication. And that is just abdication, simply shirking his responsibility to lead. Shirking his responsibility to to carry out judgment when he should have. When we look at the sins of Amnon and Absalom, we, we might think that the total responsibility lies on their shoulders, right? They made the choice for their sins, they sinned, they are fully responsible. I don't think it's that easy. Let's consider Absalom's sin first—the murder of his brother. Look at verse twenty-one. Now, when King David heard all these matters, he was very angry. So, when he heard about the rape of his daughter, he was angry. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament—okay, remember the Old Testament's originally written in Hebrew, but the Greeks, or I should say the um, The people who spoke Greek would uh, have their Old Testament in the Greek language. And so in that translation it says he would not punish him because he was the firstborn. The reason that he did not punish Amnon was because he was the firstborn. That is, he fails to carry out judgment on Amnon as he deserves. He simply did nothing. That's abdication. He could have made Amnon care for Tamar for the rest of his life. He could have carried out capital capital punishment for committing incest. David doesn't do it. And so Absalom feels like he has to take justice into his own hands. If dad's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. Amnon needs to come to justice. So what I'm saying is, yes, Absalom absolutely is responsible for his own sin. But what if David had carried out judgment on Amnon like he should have? I'm not trying to explain away Absalom at all, but I'm I'm trying to show that that the sins of the fathers often lead to and are partially responsible for, partially responsible for the sins of their children. Could it be that David knows that if he judges Amnon, if he carries out judgment on Amnon, that he will look disingenuous? since he committed adultery with Bathsheba and killed her husband, how's that going to look? In other words, if David had challenged Amnon about his sin, could not Amnon challenge David about his sin with Bathsheba? We can't get into the mind of David, but what we can see is that David didn't act when he should have. He was the king. He had the right to bear the sword. And instead, the text says in verse 21 that he simply was angry. So, I think the point of this text is that my sin and my failure to lead, my failure to lead, often contribute to the sins of others. My sin and my failure to lead often contribute to the sins of others. I think the story is about Amnon and his sin, how terrible it is. We can learn much from how he disobeyed God. We can learn much from Absalom and and him holding in this resentment against against his brother and not leaving vengeance to the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord, right? We can learn much from that. But I think the point of this text is about David. That David's sin and David's failure to lead contributed to the sins of his sons so, friends, like a stone in the water, my sin affects more than just me. It has this ripple effect that goes out beyond just me. We like it just to drop in there and not make a splash at all. Six principles to consider tonight in closing. Number one. Maybe. There we go. I reap what I sow. I reap what I sow. Listen to Proverbs 22, 8. He who sows iniquity will reap vanity and the rod of his fury will perish. Or Galatians 6, 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, that will he also reap. David reaps what he sowed. Do you know that feeling when you are tricked in a really bad way? David has that feeling twice here in this passage. First by Amnon, send me Tamar because I'm sick. And then by Absalom, come to my party and if not, send Amnon. In both cases, they got their father's permission to carry out the harm that they wanted to do. They had tricked David. The man who was a man after God's own heart, a man of wisdom, was also a man who was tricked by his own two sons and disastrous evil happened as a result this reminds me of jacob who was very crafty tricking esau out of his blessing and constantly using people as pawns but when he was ready to marry rachel he was tricked by laban when we are the victim of our own methods and devices of evil It helps us to see what the victims of our sin feel when we sin against them. Has that ever happened to you? That as a victim, your pain is so great that you don't want anyone to have to experience your pain. Maybe you've been mistreated. And yet in time you realize that that you, yourself, have been the source of someone else's pain in a similar way. That you have reaped what you have sown. David deceived in in taking Bathsheba and then killing her husband. He deceived twice. And he was deceived twice. David was the deceiver in chapter eleven and the deceived in chapter thirteen. I reap what I sow. Secondly, the source and consequences of my sin are complex. Source and the consequences of my sin are complex. These sins of Amnon and Absalom are just horrific to even speak of. But do these two sins remind you of anyone else? Amnon took a prohibited. Woman, in order to fulfill a lustful desire. Doesn't that sound like his father? Absalom murdered a man at the hands of his servants whom he had no right to kill. Sounds a lot like David, doesn't it? Now to be clear, David is not the immediate cause of Amnon's sin. But did not David's sin with Bathsheba lay the precedent for Amnon to get what he wanted by force? Did it not give him an example of how he could get what he wanted? David is not the immediate cause of Absalom's sin. But did not David's expression of selfish power over Uriah set the precedent for Absalom to take matters into his own hands and kill for his own purposes? And the point that I'm making is that David must take partial responsibility for the sins of his sons. David was not the source of their sin. Everybody is drawn away and enticed by their own lusts. But it is very complex because David actually had a part in it in some way. He at least gave them room to justify their sins. And in fact, in many ways, Amnon and Absalom are the result of the consequences of David's sins that were promised by God, right? Remember the promise? The sword will never depart from your house. Here it begins. The war between his sons. It's not going to end. So, because of David's sins... The consequences of it led to his son's sinning and David's not handling his sin properly and taking when he shouldn't have set them a negative example to be able to follow and to justify their own sin. Number three children are a reflection of their parents. It's interesting that each of these three children portray the characteristics of their father. Tamar is this principled, innocent young woman who is concerned about obeying the law of Moses, but who is mistreated and she has to go in hiding. Sounds a lot like David. Amnon is a passionate, crafty man who will stop at nothing to get at what he wants. He fulfills his immoral cravings by taking something that doesn't belong to him. Absalom is a young man who wants justice to be done. He has seen the wrong that Amnon has done to his sister, and so he takes matters into his own hands and carries out justice since no one else will. And so the application for us is that our children are going to reflect us. They're going to reflect our sins in some way. I'm not saying all this in order to scare you into thinking that all of your sins will be committed by your children and, and to a greater degree they may not. Our God is merciful in that way. He does not allow the sins sometimes to carry on for generation after generation. But the point is to recognize the great trouble that our sin causes. We don't just sin and then it's over. We don't just drop a pebble in and there's no splash. Our sin often has long-term effects on us and others, and we can't get away from that. So we need to be sober when we think about what we're doing as parents or anyone else. Your sin affects more than just you. Number four, my big sin is a reflection of my earlier sin. My big sin is a reflection of my earlier sin. We might look at David at a time like this as sin of abdication, of not fulfilling his responsibility to carry out judgment on Amnon. We might think, David, of all times, how could you possibly punt at a time like this? Everything is riding on your choice here, and what do you do? You get angry and do nothing. But this is not the first time that David abdicated his leadership responsibility. Remember the story of Joab and Abner? Abner, Abner was this man who was rising to power, tried to establish his own throne through Ishbosheth, and he kills Ishbosheth. And then he, he tries to, to rise up into the ranks in David's, in David's kingdom. But Joab's already there, he's already the military commander, and he's not going to have it. So Joab sets up the secret meeting with Abner, and he kills him, he murders him. What did David do? Did David carry out capital punishment on Joab? No, instead he let the murderer go free. And at that time, Amnon and Absalom were just little boys, perhaps five and seven years old. Our sins don't happen in a vacuum. That is, we all of a sudden make this big, catastrophic, explosive sin. Our big sins are a reflection of our earlier sins. And we've failed and we haven't learned to repent. We haven't turned from our sins. So we should not be surprised when we sin in big ways. When we're constantly embracing our sins instead of turning from them. Number five. It's good to see David for who he is. We like to think of David as a spiritual giant, and in many ways he was, right? He killed a giant, Goliath. He endured the wrath of Saul. He wrote the Psalms. He's called a man after God's own heart. A lot more good things we could say about him, but he was largely flawed, was he not? And the truth is that we are all flawed. We all have our vices. We have committed our sins. Some major, some minor. Some private, some public. But we are all flawed in many ways. But here's the good news. Those are the kinds of people that God uses. Not the ones who are self-righteous and externally conforming. He uses the broken and the weak. The exposed sinners who have nothing left but to rely on him. And David's going to have to go in hiding again. He's going to have to run from his own son. These are the kinds of people that God uses the ones who are broken, who have sinned, and yet are willing to rely on him because there's nowhere else to turn. And number six God is not out of the picture. God is not out of the picture. It's true that God is not mentioned in this chapter. And it's hard for us to see that. To see a whole, a large narrative without God in it at all. And we know that for David, things are not going to get much better. better. And so from a human perspective, we might think that everything is spiraling out of control. But what we know from the larger picture step out even farther than these couple chapters that we're looking at is that God is, is doing exactly what He wants and He will bring about the proper heir to His throne. Not Amnon, he's dead. Not Absalom, he's going to be killed in battle. Not Adonijah, who's next in line tries to take the, king by, the kingdom by force. But lowly Solomon, one of the surviving sons of David and Bathsheba. God is doing exactly what He wants, even despite our sins and our big sins, our public sins. God still accomplishes His purposes. And He brings about the kingly line that He promised would never go away, and that there would be a king forever, and that king is our Savior, Jesus. God works in the bigger picture despite our sin. He uses people who are broken. Praise God that He does. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the, the uh, harsh reality that sin has on us, the effect that it has on us, that we, when we see the consequences of other people's big and public sins, we look at ourselves and realize that that we too could be in that position By your grace, you have kept us from scandalous sins. Maybe you haven't. And yet, we still trust in you. We we still have confidence that you are doing what is best. And we're still confident that you can use people like us. We read throughout the Bible of believers who put their faith in you, but at the same time were largely flawed and, and had many... Um, vices and yet you use them to bring about exactly what you wanted lord may we help may we see the the seriousness of our own sin not take our sin lightly and think that that we can fulfill this immoral desire or this godless desire and not have to deal with any of the consequences after all, Christ has paid for them all, so so why should we have to worry about that? Lord, help us not to think in those terms. How could we go on sinning so that grace will abound? Lord, we of all people know what it costs our Savior for our sins. And so, Lord, we pray that, that we would be good examples for the people around us, particularly those of us who have children, that we would guard our lives and our hearts that we do not pass on our sinful tendencies to our children and give them opportunity to justify their own sins. Lord, help us to make a choice to act where we need to act, not abdicate our responsibility. Give us wisdom in all these things. And Lord, pour on us Your grace. We need Your grace. We cannot live without Your unmerited favor. Thank You that Your grace saved us, and now may Your grace lead us all the way to final salvation, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.